All right. Well, matters like inflation, gas prices, <laughs> the general state of our economy has been rather prominent in the news lately. While I won't delve into economics on a macro level, for the good of us all today, I am in no position to speak on such things. I want to tell you something about my approach to spending. I love a good deal. I don't like to pay full price for things. I, I, find, I find, I don't know if it's quite adrenaline, but there, there's something satisfying at least in feeling like I've paid a little bit less than the amount that the uh, uh, owner was asking at one point or another. Sometimes my exuberance about deals results in strange things being delivered to our home. <laughs> I'll find something on Amazon or online and think, oh, this might need that, that's a good deal. And it arrives a few days later, but usually it works out for the best. We, we all have approaches. I'm not going to ask you to share yours, but we all have approaches in, in regard to spending. Some people would say, well, my time is worth more than $1.50, right? So I'm not going to spend 20 minutes looking for some sort of a deal online or at the store or whatever in order to save just a little bit of money. And that approach is, is fine, too. I'd suggest to you, though, that spending is very much the focus of the passage that we'll read from John 2 this morning. To orient us a little bit, this is very early, of course, in Jesus' ministry in John. John the Baptist has announced his identity. He's called a couple disciples, and then last week we read that he's a pretty great guest to have at a wedding, right? While word may be beginning to kind of spread about Jesus' activity within that area of the world and, and specifically among the Jewish people, the event of Passover, the event of Passover and the convergence of hundreds of thousands, maybe up to a million folk upon Jerusalem, provided just the platform for a very public act. Passover, of course, and we're going to get this again uh, around Easter time, Passover would have been the, the, the greatest of celebrations as it related to uh, the Israelite people, the Hebrew people, God's chosen people. It commemorated their deliverance from Egypt when the, the, the angel of death passed over the people whose doorposts were marked with the blood of the Lamb. So that became, kind of evolved into this celebration of of uh, commemorating God's deliverance of their ancestors and also, also of sacrifices being made uh, in, in regard to their own sin. So it's within that event that these events from John 2 happen. Beginning in verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple... He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. 
And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy the temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? And then parenthetically, John notes, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. I think it helps to have kind of a cursory understanding as to the geography of the temple at this time and its impact. You'll remember that the first temple was built by Solomon. That temple was destroyed in about 586 BC when the Babylonians invaded the land of Judah. Well, they finally get back Remember those prophets, Nehemiah and others, who were talking about the disrepair that the temple was in? The exiles finally are able to return. There are a couple other of of major empires that are in control during that time, and eventually the Romans. They finally get back, and King Herod, kind of a puppet king of Rome, elects in part to gain the loyalty of the people. Well, shoot, let's rebuild their temple. That'll galvanize the folk around following me. And so that's what he begins doing. He probably um, began building right not too long before the birth of Christ. So we add about 30 years onto that. They're still really building it. It didn't complete, they didn't complete their construction until about 63 AD. However, it was complete enough during the time of Jesus for the various activities associated with the temple to take place and for the temple to become really the, the, the uh, uh, primary place where the events of the religion occurred. Within the temple, there, ex- there existed four distinct courts. And I like this picture because it kind of shows it. In fact, I used a little arrow there to indicate... Uh, the Gentile courtyard, the, the, the far outside court, and then you can kind of, I don't know if I can, there we go. The women's courtyard is here, and then there's the priest courtyard here. I missed one. So there's the court of the Gentiles, the court of women, the court of Israel and men, and then the court of um, the priest. The priest may be here. I don't know exactly where the... Oh, here, Israelite courtyard is right, right there. So I guess there's some distinction somewhere around here between the Israelite courtyard and the priest. It, they kind of, the, the names make sense. Right? I mean, they don't make sense, but you can understand who goes where. The Gentiles could go in a certain spot within the temple. Then the women were allowed a little further in, and then the men or the 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 men of Israel were allowed a a little closer to the Holy of Holies and then the priest. The event of this passage took place at the outside courtyard, the place where anyone could go, clean or unclean, Gentile or Jew, whatever you could go. 
Well, what had happened by the time Jesus arrived was that that outside courtyard meant for uh, the Gentiles to approach God had become an area of convenience, a convenience store, where the people who needed sacrifices, instead of hauling their animals from wherever they lived up to Jerusalem to the temple, they could just buy them there. Now, on its face, that's not a problem necessarily. The problem came in that there was an upcharge. <laughs> you weren't getting a deal if you bought it there. And there was a certain, within, within this passage, within the, the, the specific folk that Jesus mentioned, there seemed to be a certain uh, willingness to take advantage of people. Jesus lost it. <laughs> he said, this should not be. I told you a minute ago, I like shopping for deals. You know where you don't get a deal? An airport. They've got you. They've got you trapped. They can charge almost whatever they'd like. So you pay $5 for a bottle of water, right? The dealings at the temple, especially during high holy feasts in which sacrifices were needed, was similar. You had to have the right type of currency to pay the temple tax. Not to worry, friendly money changers were, were there to help. You didn't want to travel with your animal that you were required to sacrifice. We'll make it convenient, they said. We'll sell you the animal here in the temple, along with an upcharge. So Jesus sees all that, and respectfully, he freaks out, right? You know how long it takes to braid together from cords a whip? This was not Jesus just walking in and, oh, you know, this is Jesus sitting over on the side, planning out what he's going to do next. And he does it. He does it. He proceeds to drive out the money changers, the animals being sold, with the scope and the size of the temple, and the number of people there at the time. His actions probably didn't impact the whole of what was going on within the Gentile court. But it did get the attention of the group that John calls the Jews. So Jesus acts. There's this chaos, at least within some section of the Gentile court. And then there's this, inner, there's this uh, exchange. Because Jesus' actions represented a threat to the status quo. They represented a threat to how things kind of worked within the temple. And it, they risked to those whose livelihoods depended on things kind of continuing as normal. Jesus, beginning to gain popularity, you can see the rub. And so they came to him and said, what, what are your credentials to do this? What gives you the right to come in and destroy our convenience store? And he says to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now it's not hard to see why they could have interpreted those words literally. He is standing in the temple at the time. If I were to say, what, you know, I'll destroy this church and in three days raise it up, 
everyone would think I'm talking about this building. In fact, John says, later the disciples were like, oh yeah, he meant his body. We thought he meant the actual temple. However, however, it is in that meaning that the, the, the purpose of the whole act and even the purpose of Jesus coming hinges. Let me, let me show you. The temple, what did it represent? Ultimately, it represented the place where sinful people received God's blessing. Jesus, in coming as God in the flesh, was the embodiment of that temple. And so, on the day in which Jesus tossed tables and chased out money changers, he was rebelling against the idea that humanity has to pay a price to meet God. In his coming, in his subsequent death and resurrection, God, through Jesus, God, through God, pays the price to meet us. We're so prone to try to pay our own way. So prone to try to work out a deal. Try to slide in somehow paying as little as possible while paying just enough to get what we need. That we become incapable of recognizing our admission has already been paid. What a transformative thought that is. Amen.